Welcome in the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Braddon. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter. And hey, no Cousin Shane on this episode. Well, kind of. He's out there hitting the pavement doing his big orange walks. We got Ben Portnoy from the state deep dive on the South Carolina Gamecocks. You guys will really appreciate We got news. From across the SEC. So this is going to be a fun little finish strong Friday of a show. But let's kick it over first before we get into the action to the Tennessee Homer. All those big orange walks. We're going to, we got to feature these on the show. They're so good and so proud of Cousin Shane for out there and getting this done. He even, you know, we, this was so late in the day. He even, uh, you know, this is, this is day one of a hundred. But he said, you know, should I, should I wait till tomorrow and just get 99? I said, get your ass out there. Get you the first day. First day is always the toughest. He said he nearly died on this one, but uh, let's kick it over to the first edition of Big Orange Walks. Guys, it's Cousin Shane that SEC podcast. Long time no see. Bringing it back, baby. Second annual Big Orange Walks. You know what that means? We're 100 days away from SEC football. And I know what you're thinking. How long is that fat bastard going to last this time? I'm going all the way, baby. 100 days. You know? Yeah, maybe last year didn't work out so well, but, you know, you got you to gotta learn. You got to pick yourself back up. I mean, I think Coach O, Ole Miss, he gets fired from his dream job. He could tuck tail, hide from college football the rest of his life. But he goes out there, keeps grinding, lands a gig at LSU, and finds his way to a national championship. God, if that ain't a success story, and I know what you're saying, Shane Coachella's probably not the best example. I mean, he did get fired from LSU, but he got paid. Coach O was playing chess while we were all playing checkers. Anyway, like I said, 100 days to SEC football. Let's get it, boys and girls. I'll see you tomorrow. Great stuff from Cousin Shane. Uh, man, I can't can't wait to talk to him about this. But uh, hey, only ninety nine more days to go. Uh, but let's move on with the show. Big news potentially on the plane. Tumor's corner. Auburn's coming to roll you. Final score: Auburn forty eight, Alabama forty five. And I got to tread carefully here because I don't know exactly what to say. But uh, big news because Auburn has suspended star running back Jarquez Hunter. Projected starter, projected to be one of the breakout stars in the SEC without having to split the carries with Tank Bigsby this season. And uh, here's the statement that Auburn has put out. We are aware of the situation and take this matter very seriously. The appropriate offices are conducting a thorough review. Indefinite suspensions have been issued for a violation of applicable Auburn student athletes department policy. No further comments will be provided at this time. And rumor is there's more players involved. I'm not going to say any names because none are being public aside from Jarquez Hunter. And you may be wanting to know what in the heck's happening here. I don't 100% know. So that's why I'm not going to say. I've heard the rumors. I've heard the speculation. It's pretty easy to find online if you just go on Twitter and search it. But I'm not going to be the one to say something because it may be 100% wrong. It could ruin this guy's reputation. 
Uh, and I'll just say to my understanding, I mean, no, you know, he didn't rob anybody. He didn't fail any drug tests. At least that's not that I'm aware of. Uh, so, I mean, this is not something that, um, I don't know. I, I don't, again, I don't, I'm treading carefully here. So we'll see what happens from this, but, uh, the fact that he is suspended, very noteworthy, but they have got plenty of time, as they said, to do a thorough investigation before training camp and the season comes around. But man, if this leads to getting kicked off the team or suspended for, for the season or what have you would be a huge blow because he's essentially going to be the centerpiece of the offense there in Hugh Freeze's first season on the Plains. On a lighter note here, Kentucky, great news on the bluegrass here because them Wildcats landed an elite commitment. We don't talk a ton recruiting on this show, but would you land a top quarterback? We got to give a shout out to Mark Stoops and company because Cutter Bowley from Lexington commit to Kentucky here on Thursday this was a very prized recruit from the 2025 class. So he's two classes away, but apparently he is going to reclassify to be in the 2024 cycle so that he's on campus in spring football, the, the next spring football. So he's not, not on the team this fall, but uh, it's always great to get that quarterback to build your class around. And why is this such a big-time commit? He's the top prospect in Kentucky. He's the number six quarterback prospect in the entire country in the 2025 class he had offers from Tennessee apparently he was leaning Tennessee until Liam Cohen the great offensive coordinator returned to Kentucky so I mean it just would have been heartbreaking for Kentucky had uh, their number one prospect uh, committed to the Vols now Tennessee's got a 2024 quarterback already committed highly touted guy and 2025, one of the top quarterbacks in the entire nation hails from Tennessee. So I don't know how big of a blow this is for Josh Heupel and company, but this is all about great news for Kentucky. Cutter had offers from Alabama, Michigan, Florida State. I mean, basically every power in the country extended an offer to the, this top Kentucky prospect. So just huge news for Kentucky. And, and how about this? Kentucky has not started a quarterback going back seven seasons that didn't transfer in from another college. So this is not to say that this guy's going to walk into campus and be day one starter, but uh, it it says something about Mark Stoops' program that uh, they're getting production out of Will Levis and hopefully Devin Leary, but they had to add Terry Wilson and Steven Johnson. I think that's as far back as this goes, but we have got to get to a point where we develop a quarterback, get one out of high school, and get him up to speed for the college football game. And Cutter may be the one to get that done for them Kentucky Wildcats. At least that is the hope. But I just thought that was an interesting little stat there for Mark Stoops' program. Now, final thing before we get to our interview, great interview here with uh, Ben Portnoy from the state. I just thought this was kind of interesting because I know – we put out before where these teams rank in the transfer portal class. But uh, now that the second window has come and gone and, and the vast majority of commitments are, are in the books as programs get to that 85 scholarship limit, I just thought it would be kind of interesting to, to look at where the transfer portal rankings are for every SEC program. And, you know, if you're high on this list, you're excited if you're low on this list, doesn't necessarily mean anything because maybe your roster was already set. 
And that's your, that's a more ideal situation than having the top transfer class in the SEC. That means you needed transfers, and you needed them to shore up not only depth issues, but potentially start and be impact players, which is never a guarantee with transfers, particularly guys that didn't even get in for spring that are coming into a new system, working with new teammates. So it is a gamble, of course, to rely so heavily on transfers. But, hey, it's been working. It's been working for Ole Miss, working for LSU, working for Tennessee, on and on and on. Alabama, they've gotten some big-time production out of transfers as well. So just wanted to make this note, and I'm comparing this to where these teams ranked before the second portal window opened and after. So there's movement here. And right now, the top portal class in the SEC is them Auburn Tigers. They jumped up a spot post-spring. So good job, Hugh Freeze and company. They've got the number three transfer portal class in the entire country. LSU's at number four. They actually slipped two spots, but top four in the country. (laughs) They got most of their work done before the second portal window credit Brian Kelly and company. How about the Arkansas Razorbacks? They jumped up six spots. They got the number nine transfer portal class in the entire country. They have just been adding players all over that defense to add depth and talent in Fayetteville. Great job by Sam Pittman and company. Ole Miss, they fell 12 spots. They had what was an elite class. Now it's number 12. I mean, Fell six spots, excuse me, to number 12. So still a solid transfer portal class, but not number six like it was before the second portal window. And they just missed out on Keon Coleman from Michigan State. Florida, number 17, that's what you were before. So no no change there for, for the Gators. Kentucky up two spots to the number 18 class. They have been adding some key linemen that will add depth, that will hopefully – shore up uh, what could be the the weakest spot on that Kentucky roster this fall, that offensive line. South Carolina, ranked number 29. They fell three spots. They've been missing out on a couple guys. But, again, they did most of their damage in the first portal window. So you got to take that into consideration as well. Tennessee right now has the number 38 class. That's minus 13 spots. So big jump back. But they're another one they added via the first transfer portal window have not really added since then that I can think of. So that's kind of explain the big drop there while others around them add transfers. How about them Aggies? Number 40 transfer class, which you say, you might say, well, what? that's not that good. Up 17 spots following the second transfer portal window. So they have been adding key pieces to bolster that depth across the board on that Texas A&M roster. I like to see Jimbo being more flexible with the transfer portal. Mizzou, number 42, they're up six spots in the transfer portal rankings. Mississippi State, they're ranked 46. They dropped eight spots. Alabama, number 53, up eight spots after adding Buckner and a a couple defensive backs, one from UAB, one from Louisiana. Georgia, number 57, transfer class. That's kind of stunning to me considering the receivers they brought in, but Again, they added those guys after the first portal window, but they dropped 12 spots in these transfer portal rankings. And Vanderbilt, number 95 transfer portal class, down 11 spots. And I should have mentioned at the top there, these are the transfer portal rankings via 24-7 sports. So there you have it. 
post-spring transfer portal grades for every SEC team. But all right, hey, that's all I got. It's a little bit of a slow news day in the SEC. So let's kick it over to this outstanding interview with Ben Portnoy, who was very kind to give me a ton of time to talk Shane Beamer and them South Carolina Gamecocks. All right, we're pleased to uh, once again be joined by Ben Portnoy. Haven't, I don't think we've had you on, Ben, since uh, SEC Media Days. It's always a treat. You cover the South Carolina Gamecocks, of course, for the state. And, man, what a time it is to be covering South Carolina, uh, the football program, and, and women's basketball. I mean, so much going on with the Gamecocks. Thank you so much for taking some time to, to talk some South Carolina with us. Yeah, man, absolutely. Appreciate you having me. Always fun to catch up and, uh, and reconnect for a little bit. Yeah. So I, I wanted to start with Shane Beamer. And, and what is it like? Because, you know, I, I know, I know maybe the casual fans may not care as much about, uh, you know, the lives of beat writers and stuff like that. But, man, just from what I know personally, I mean, this is a, t- a tremendous staff. Their communication is great. The SID Steve is great. They give you access to players. They give you a, a, access to, to assistance. And it's not like that across the SEC and across college football. Um, I mean, I mean, it's got to be a treat covering that beat. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's the thing that you find, at least from, you know, a beat writer perspective, right? How accessible our coach is, how are they to deal with the media and, you know, day to day, generally speaking. And look, like not every coach is going to be your best friend by any stretch of the imagination or anything like that. But I think that, you know, the way that Shane is and his staff are, I think that it's generally a really, you know, genuine group of people. I think a lot of you know, there's not a lot of BS with what you see. I mean, I think, you know, certainly there's coaches that drum up, you know, beat their drum to their narratives and things like that. And that's going to happen. I mean, that's part of it. But I do think that, you know, what you see with Shane is, I think, you know, what you get with Shane behind closed doors, too. I mean, it's not it's roughly all the same, whether the cameras are rolling or otherwise. And I think that that, you know, for us as reporters makes it really fun and makes it easy. And then, you know, it's always fun to be able to catch up with him and stuff. So it's it, it makes it really fun. And I think that, you know, when you spend as much time around folks as you do during football season, when you're up at the facility, whatever, four or five days a week or at the stadium or whatever it is, it, uh, <laughs> it's amazing how much, uh, that, how far that goes, I would say. Yeah. And do you have a, a, a story you'd be willing to share that maybe encapsulates that? I mean, I know like Beamer right now is on the trail going to these booster events and I, I see you there holding up your phone and you're at, I mean, you follow this guy everywhere cause you're on the beats, what you got to do. Is there anything you could share with the audience to just, just kind of puts that into perspective? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, actually just last night is a great example. We were down in Somerville just outside of, uh, Charleston last night and, Shane was playing golf down there for a, uh, an alumni event. And he was running a little bit late. And funny enough, he and I both got stuck in Charleston traffic trying to get to where we were going. So it took us about double the amount of time to get there um, as, as it usually does. But anyway, so he got there a little bit late and they had to start the program right up. And usually what happens is, is that Shane will stay. It will sign autographs for about an hour to visit with people, take pictures, all that. And then uh, we'll give a speech about, you know, six, seven o'clock after about an hour of doing all of that. And, Last night, he basically apologized for being there or for being there late and, and said to everyone, you know, I'll hang out after the after and sign autographs. And we were standing there and a buddy of mine who I ran into was like, you know, oh, I want to go get this thing signed. Do you think he'll still be signing autographs in like 30 minutes or whatever as the line kind of trickled down? And I, I said, I was like, when he says he will stand there and sign every autograph, I mean, he's not kidding. I mean, he signed every autograph, took every picture. I mean, he probably sat there till. He probably didn't leave there till about nine o'clock, if not later, close to. I mean, he was signing autographs and hanging out and visiting with people for, you know, 
well over an hour after his program ended. And, and, you know, again, like everyone's different and everyone's got different personalities, but I think that is Shane's. He, he really does get along with people. He's a relationship guy. Like that is his thing. And I think that that's, uh, that's come out now, even sort of being in the spotlight as a, as a coach, certainly that, you know, can affect things, but I think that he's really remained fairly true to that. And I, I appreciate that. And I think a lot of fans do too. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, we can't talk about Gamecock football without mentioning the Tennessee win from last year and winning, snapping that Clemson streak, winning in uh, Death Valley, even though I don't honor that as the real Death Valley. But I just wanted to ask you about which one, in your mind, was the bigger win for Shane Beamer's program? Because there's no wrong answer, but I'm just curious to, to get your thoughts on that. That's a good question. I actually hadn't thought about it that way, but because, you, you know, we look at the last season and we kind of lump those two together almost just because they're back to back. But, you know, I think that, I mean, I think they're both important for different reasons, right? I think that you could, that's a total cop-out answer, I know. But <laughs> I, I do think that, uh, you know, you look at the Tennessee game and I think that with the way that South Carolina played at Florida the week before, I mean, this team looked dead in the water and I was joking about it with someone the other day. It's like, you looked at this team walking off the field in Gainesville after just getting run over but by, you know, what was frankly a pretty mediocre at best Florida team. And it was kind of like, all right, well, they've got two games left against South uh, Tennessee and Clemson. They'll go six and six and they'll go play some bowl game in Birmingham or somewhere in Florida. And that'll be that. But to, to come back and, and beat Tennessee the way they did, to click in the way that they did, to simplify the offense a little bit in the way that they did, kind of trim down the playbook, trim down a few personnel packages, things like that basically do all the things they said they were going to do all year and then didn't and then actually did it and it worked. It, it was a really impressive thing to see. Um, and again, I mean, I said this before the season last year and, and Spencer Rattler is one of those guys that he's like a three point shooter, right? There's going to be a night where he just catches fire and he gets hot and he's going to go win you a football game and you don't know when it's going to be and it's just going to happen. And we're going to look up and say, what was that? And that's pretty much what happened in the Tennessee game. I mean, he was unconscious. He hit every throw. He hit guys in stride. I mean, South Carolina scored on what? Their first five possessions, I think, in that game, uh, maybe. So I think that that was kind of one of those games that you felt like might be in there, but there was nothing that inspired any kind of confidence it was actually coming, especially in the week before that. Um, but then to the Clemson game, I, I think like the obvious ties are the in-state rivalry. It had been, what, seven years since South Carolina had beaten Clemson. Uh, it, you know, Clemson has really dominated that rivalry for the better part of a decade now. And, and I think that that's, you know, had a wear on people here in the state. And I think that it, it, that always matters and winning at Death Valley matters and, and all of those things. So I think that that's a big deal. I think that, you know, Clemson probably was a little bit, I guess, what constitutes a down year for Clemson these days, right? They still won 10 games, won the ACC. But I do think that when you look at what Tennessee was, uh, you know, going into that game, I mean, frankly, I had Tennessee ranked number one when they were still undefeated going into the Georgia game. And, and I think I still had them at number three, maybe even afterwards. I mean, I felt really, really good about this Tennessee team. And I, and I still think that Tennessee team probably didn't get as much credit as it deserved down the stretch, even after losing the Georgia game and all that. I mean, um, but I but I think that, you know, from a national perspective, I think the Tennessee game is the one that put them on the map. I think in state, the game against Clemson is the one that will resonate with recruits, with people here and, and kind of all of that. Oh yeah, I'm glad you referenced that, Ben, because I know you're a, you're a voter in the poll, 
and you caught some grief. I'm just curious if you're still catching grief because you what it was. If if I from my perspective, correct any of this if I have it wrong. Mm. But South Carolina was ranked 25th when they were mm. leading up to Missouri, and you didn't have them on your ballot, and you were catching hell. And then they come out and they lost to Missouri, and, and you basically said, "Well, that's why I didn't have them ranked." And then by God, there was hell to pay. Uh, are you still catching hell for that? <laughs> We're doing better now. I think <laughs> me and uh, Gamecock Nation have pissed and made up, or whatever you want to call it. I think the Tennessee win and the, the Clemson win made people forget about you know my voting <laughs> tendencies or whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, no, it, it was a crazy time. But I, I think it was a tough. I, I think the South Carolina team, honestly, that's kind of what's so interesting about it, and it has been the last two years. And it's kind of a similar thing this year. They've just been really hard to handicap and hard yeah. to say what they actually are because they have a great, you know, they have these weeks against Clemson and Tennessee, but then they have, you know, right before that, you have the game against Florida where they, I mean, frankly, looks completely unprepared. We're run off the field in 10 minutes. And it's been such a weird sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing with this South Carolina team. And, and some of that's a product of you're bringing in guys, you're, you're, figuring out a system, all of that. Like, I, I get that. There's normal things that come with that over the course of two years, even three or four years. But I think that to me at the time, you know, when I left South Carolina out, I think they were five and two and had beaten A&M. But I think Kentucky on the road was their best win to that point. But that was Kentucky without Will Levis. And I think at that point we had all kind of acknowledged that A&M wasn't particularly good. So it, it was kind of five wins, but had lost to Arkansas and kind of a shootout. But, not ugly, but not necessarily close manner, uh, and, and had gotten run off the field by Georgia. And you know, frankly, Georgia ran just about everyone off the field. But I, I think that it was just one of those things where it was like, all right, like they're five and two. If they go beat Missouri, they're six and two. They're sitting pretty for a bowl game, et cetera. I was like, all right, like this is the kind of game that they went over and tripped over themselves the year ago, and and you can kind of see like, okay, is there some match race and some change there, and then. Obviously, they lost that game, and I probably stoked the flames in a way that I probably shouldn't have in retrospect, which is fine. I mean, you know, you live and you learn, right? But um, yeah, but I do think that you know, to South Carolina's credit, they came back, they won some really big games, and I think that again, it, it kind of makes them so interesting because they've been good for kind of an upset that you didn't expect or a game that you didn't expect the last two years, whether it was you know this year with Tennessee or Clemson or last year with North Carolina in the bowl game or whatever it might be. So it's it's a really interesting team, and there's a lot of sort of. Again, it's just a really weird team to try and handicap because you really don't know what you're going to get. And, and it certainly makes it fun and it certainly makes it uh, volatile as well. But it's definitely uh, it definitely makes them interesting going into 2023, I think. Well, to that point, Ben, I mean, I've been having on a tons of uh, odds makers and analytics people. And I thought the the over under win total would be eight. That's what I kind of thought South Carolina would be. But based on all these models and based on Vegas and everything, it, they're putting it at six point five. And a lot of these people are going under. And again, it, it, that's not they're not saying the Gamecocks are horrible or anything like that. But you look at it and they have arguably the toughest schedule in the country uh, with, with the way it ends or, or the way it starts against North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, and, and throwing Mississippi State. That's not a gimme. And, and obviously playing Clemson at the tail end. So it's a difficult stretch. But what's your thoughts on that 6.5? I, I know it's way too early to, to uh, you know, I'm not going to hold you to it, but would you be more confident that they go over or under that 6.5 wins this season? Yeah, you know, that's kind of where I fell as far as, like, if I had to pick an over or under, it was probably somewhere around 6.5, maybe 7, but even that felt a little high. I think that 
I think I'd maybe lean over, but by a hair. You know, I think this team's probably a seven and five team, maybe with some potential to go eight wins if everything breaks right. You know, maybe nine wins. But I think that, like you said, like this is a really, really, really hard schedule. And I mean, South Carolina managed that more years than not. I know it's sort of the running joke around here that. You know, every time there's the the ranking of the toughest schedules in the country, South Carolina is basically guaranteed to be in the top five because they get Clemson as a non-conference every year, especially in the last, you know, whatever, seven years or whatever you want to call it. So I think that it's it's part of it. And I think it's it's an interesting dynamic. But I do think that you look at the schedule again. You mentioned those early games, right? Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Mississippi State. I mean, if you get through those games at two and two, and you would have a you know one-off game against Furman. If, if you're sitting at three and two coming out of your first five games, you should feel pretty dang good about where you are as a program because then you close the season right with the Kentuckys, the Missouris. There's a uh, Jacksonville State game down the stretch there. Uh, you're going to get Vanderbilt at some point, right? Like there's a potential to rip off some wins down the stretch of this this season, but it's that early part of the season where if you can kind of manage those tricky matchups. And I mean, like you said, opening the season week one against Drake May in North Carolina and Charlotte, like that's a hell of a way to jump into the football season <laughs> against a quarterback <laughs> of that caliber when you're replacing two starting cornerbacks and some other pieces on the line and, and got to figure out who's going to play defensive end. So um, I, I, I do think that it's, I, I think that like, if you told me that South Carolina ended up falling back a little bit and won six games, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I think it, I th- still think this team's floor is probably about six games because I don't think they're – I think they're going to win one of those four games, at least in the early going of the season. I don't really see them going 0-4 in that stretch. I think they probably pick off some combination of, you know, uh, Mississippi State or North Carolina or maybe Tennessee again. I, you know, we'll see what Tennessee is with Joe Milton. But I, I think that, it, again, like I think six and a half – feels about right. I'd probably lean a little bit over that because I do think that there's that South Carolina can get through that stretch at, you know, including the Furman game at, at three and two or somewhere in there. So if that's the case, I, I feel pretty good about them getting to seven wins and, you know, eight or nine is kind of gravy because I mean, South Carolina's 0-2 against Missouri again under Shane Beamer. You do get Kentucky at home. You know, they got to go to two A&M and, you know, A&M should be improved, but I, I'm still not convinced that that's, you know, going to skyrocket, you know, from last year as well. So, Mm-hmm. There's going to be chances, but it's, it's a, again, it's, it's such a weird team to peg that I think, you know, they're going to be like right over that or right under it. I think six and a half makes you, uh, it definitely makes you think about it a little bit. Right. And the way I put it the other day, Ben, I mean, they, this is a sign of progress. You snapped the mm-hmm. Kentucky streak. You snapped the Tennessee streak. You snapped the A&M streak. You, you snapped the Clemson streak and you still lost five games. And that's because that is the living life in the SEC, living life playing big time bowl games. So uh, they have got to keep that momentum, keep winning those games that they, they've they've lost in years past uh, to keep climbing that SEC ladder. And it's just easier said than done. But on a bright side, man, they're killing it on the recruiting trail. Currently have the number nine recruiting class in the country. Is that a surprise to you, or or did you kind of anticipate this with with what you know about Shane Beamer and the staff and all the momentum and the facilities? I mean, South Carolina's got everything you can want. Yeah, you know, South Carolina is such an interesting place as far as recruiting, and we talk about you know where they recruit, who they recruit, all of that stuff. It's a fascinating sort of case study because I think that you've obviously got a big power in the state in Clemson, at least what Clemson has been over the last decade, basically we can say. On top of that, you've got a state in the state of South Carolina that 
you know, in its good years and its best years, right, there's going to be probably, uh, you know, I'll roughly say 12 kids that are SEC caliber kids. So the reality is Clemson's going to want to recruit those kids. Georgia's going to want to recruit those kids. I mean, last year, Notre Dame snagged a kid, a five-star kid out of, out of Hilton Head. So, you know, you're going to have competition for those guys. And, you know, let's say best case, you're signing five or six of those guys. You're going to have to build a class outside of South Carolina. So you have to get a little bit creative with the geography, whether it's Georgia and Florida, like, you know, every program in America recruits, or, you know, you've seen it with them going up toward DC, Maryland, Virginia, and getting some really, really, really good players out of there. Um, you know, Nick Harbor and, and, you know, Desmond Umiazulu, who's going to be a freshman this year, defensive end, who I think is going to be a stud, uh, you know, so they've had to get a little creative with the geography, or I guess just on paper on day one, South Carolina is a place you have to get a little bit creative with the recruiting geography and where you go. Now that said, actually translating that into bringing in, you know, what could be a top, and I think probably will end up being a top 15, top 10 class. I mean, that's a big, big, big step for a place like South Carolina, because it's not that they haven't been able to get players, right? Like they've gotten five-star recruits in the past. They've gotten guys like Jordan Birch and Zach Pickens, uh, you know, just in the last five years under Will Muschamp, but to go to a place like Washington, D.C., right, and get a guy like Nicholas Harbor, who everyone in America wants, you're fighting off Oregon for him in the last minute. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of guys that South Carolina hasn't been in on or had a chance with necessarily. And that's where you see the difference. And then you look at it, too. I mean, just look at the guys that they've signed on the offensive line between the 2023 class and the 2024 class. And then those guys who, you know, the guys in the 24 class that will eventually sign in December. I mean, South Carolina is building itself sort of inside out. And by that, I mean, you know, from the trenches and out and, and you know, could they do, they've got a little bit more work to do, I think, at def- on the defensive line here and there. Um, but they've got some got bodies there already in the program. The offensive line has been the biggest thing. And I think you look at it, I think South Carolina has signed if I'm not mistaken, four or five guys who are rated four-star recruits um, in the twenty bet- between the 2023 and 24 class. Um, you know, you've got a top hundred kid in Josiah Thompson. You've got a top hundred kid in Blake Franks. Or excuse me, uh, uh, Cam Pringle. Blake Franks is another guy in state who people are really high on. So it's it's a group that when you look at how you compete in the SEC, certainly you need the quarterback. Certainly you need the skill position players. But South Carolina is getting guys on the offensive line and, and a caliber of recruit, you know, take recruiting crankings for what they are. I get it. Like their projections on some level, but these things have become more and more accurate over time as the recruiting industry has evolved. And I think that you can look at them as real empirical data on some level and say, okay, like South Carolina is getting legitimately better players than they have in the past. I think that that's, you know, again, a reflection on Shane Beamer and his personality. He relates really well to families. He relates really well to prospects. And I think that, you know, is sort of the same with his staff. I think top down that that's sort of the reality with what this staff is as constructed. And and I think, you know, again, you give them a lot of credit for creating inroads in places that South Carolina probably should have had inroads in the past and hadn't or, or you know, had tried to and couldn't establish them. Um, and I think that you're seeing the the sort of the, the fruits of that labor. And, you know, and I think on top of all that, I mean, it's not like South Carolina went out and won 11 games last year, right? It's not like they were TCU and went out and played for a national championship like that they're able to do this on the heels of a seven win season and an eight win season. Like that's almost a a sort of forgotten thing in this is like South Carolina has been good and they've overachieved and there's excitement, but they also haven't had that breakthrough season yet. And they're still being able to go get these guys. And I think that that's something that speaks again to kind of what this program has been able to do and the, and the doors that they've been able to open with some of the guys they have on the staff. 
All right. In a little bit over a week, Ben, the SEC spring meetings will be taking place. And obviously the biggest thing looming on the on the docket there is the schedule. I know a lot of these programs in, in, are, are being very tight lipped with what exactly they want. Do you have any uh, knowledge of, of where South Carolina leans nine game, eight game? I know they're in an interesting spot because they got that Clemson game. So if they go to nine plus Clemson, I mean, the murderer's road just gets more murderous. I don't know if that's even a word, but uh, any idea where South Carolina leans on this nine game, eight, eight game thing? Yeah, I mean, I think South Carolina folks will tell you that they'd probably prefer to be on the eight-win side of things, or excuse me, eight-game side of things, just because of that Clemson game. And I think that, you know, if you you split hairs and go through the SEC, excuse me, go through the SEC and sort of say, okay, which teams probably want eight, which teams probably want nine, it's going to be teams like South Carolina or Kentucky who plays Louisville every year outside of, out of the conference. Like, there's not really a huge benefit for a, a program like South Carolina to add an extra SEC game. Now, you know, do coaches want to be competitive do kids want to play the best team certainly like that all exists but if you're going through this and just predicting it like like we like to do and say okay they're going to win this game and that game and lose that game like there's not really any incentive for south carolina to want to play nine sec games and that's not a knock on south carolina it's just the reality of having to play a team like clemson every year in your non-conference and and you beat them last year so maybe it doesn't matter but again like i just think that's part of this is that there's not really any incentive for South Carolina to, to want to add an extra SEC game. Now, if you're Alabama or Georgia or something like that, and you're trying to pad resumes and things like that, okay, maybe that's a different conversation. And, and again, these kind of things come in waves, right? I mean, look, South Carolina in 10, 11, 12 are playing in a college football playoff under Steve Spurrier in, in a different era. So mm-hmm. it, it certainly comes in waves. I think right now, again, like I don't think South Carolina probably would be in favor of the nine game schedule, but you know, I'll be down in Destin in a, in a couple of weeks and, I'm sure plenty of people will have their thoughts once those get established and uh, who gets to be whose opponent and all that. So it'll be, uh, I'm sure it, it probably won't be as quite as fun as the war of words between Jimbo and Saban last year, but I, I think it's, uh, it's certainly got some potential for some feistiness, which will be fun. It, yeah. And South Carolina is also in a unique position because they don't have, um, you know, that, that rivalry that they must have in the SEC. I mean, if they go to the nine, I would imagine Georgia and Florida, They'll probably play them annually, but I don't know who that third is. If they stick at eight, they just need the one. So let me ask you this way, Ben. If it, Regardless, if it goes to nine, who's your third team that South Carolina would play annually? If they stay at eight, who's the one that South Carolina would play annually do you think is, is most realistic, if that makes sense? Yeah. Uh, can you pick Vanderbilt three times? No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I do think that, uh, you know, I, I think realistically, Kentucky is probably one that makes a lot of sense. Uh, just geographic. I mean, not necessarily geographically, but it's a team that, that, that kind of resides in a similar place in the SEC sort of recent history aside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do think that that's one that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Tennessee makes some sense, but obviously Tennessee's got a lot of <laughs> other rivalry games to worry about and sort of sift through. So, you know, that's a tricky one as well. I mean, could it be a place like, uh, you know, again, sort of similar thing. It's probably not going to be Auburn, but Auburn realistically is not a very far drive from Columbia, uh, you know, similar thing. So I, I do think Kentucky's probably the one that makes the most sense. Um, now we'll see, but I, I mean, if you're just playing the, Hey, let's circle some teams and, who's South Carolina going to play. I mean, Georgia, Florida, and Kentucky generally feels like a decent guess as to where this thing lands. But, 
you know, obviously we'll see. And there are uh, <laughs> folks who are making a lot more money than me decide splitting hairs over that. So we'll see where uh, Greg Sankey and his crew uh, land on that. If it's Kentucky, please God, let them annually play for a, a sunglasses. You know that that Beamer was wearing at me. I mean, just just <laughs> lean into it. You know, make sure hey, make sure we're classy in our post game with the media. All right, but at SEC Media Days, he talked about stupid sunglasses uh-huh. and dancing. Come on, come This season, I think a lot of – this might be oversimplifying things, but it's going to come down to Spencer Rattler, like you said, the the, the streaky shooter. I love your analogy there. And Dow Loggins, how he comes into this with this offense of upgrade. How is that relationship, and what's your anticipation for how it looks on the field this fall? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously – Dow Loggins is going from calling plays in the NFL to calling plays in college. And and that's a little bit of a different animal, right? Like you've got guys in meeting rooms a little bit less time. You've got, uh, you know, let's be real. Like these guys aren't full-time football players. They also have to go to class too. And it's a little bit of a different animal. So there's an adjustment there. Now he's obviously been at Arkansas for the last two years. So that helps ease that transition. Certainly. Right. Um, but I do think that one thing that, that we've seen at least in, in our interactions with Dow and his interactions with the media and at least the limited parts of practice that we've been able to see, I, I do think that he's a guy that is going to uh, be willing maybe to adjust to, to what he wants, to, or excuse me, adjust to the personnel that he has. I think that that was something that South Carolina got into with a little bit of trouble in last year um, and maybe the year before. It's just there didn't feel like it's a cliche thing in coaching, right? Put your guys in the best – put your guys in the best – position to succeed there we go words are hard a little bit here on a, on a thursday afternoon but uh I, I do think that if you're able to do that i i think that you're going to see a little bit more versatility with that i think you're going to see the scheme maybe not necessarily change week to week like you're not going to change your entire offensive identity but you can shift things around and lean into things maybe a little bit more uh, in a way that south carolina maybe didn't do a ton of or didn't do as much as probably they could have uh, a year ago so i think you're going to see that i think you're going to see making use of Spencer Rattler's legs a little bit more. Um, not necessarily that he's about to run for, you know, a hundred carries next year or something like that. But, but I do think there's some real, real sort of upside with getting him moving on the, on the run a little bit, moving the pocket a little bit. I mean, I think that's something that we lose in, in sort of the flashy arm talent and everything else is Spencer moves pretty well behind the, behind the line. I mean, he's not a statue. Like he can get around and he can pick up the first down here or there uh, for you. And I think that that's something that's at least, you know, maybe a wrinkle that gets added and, and you're going to have some options. So uh, I, I think you're going to see the tight ends get involved. Certainly they've got some talent there. Juice Wells is back at receiver. Like you're going to have guys to throw to. We'll see what they do running back. I, that still is a little bit of a question mark to me, but I, I do think that South Carolina is, it's going to be a little bit more versatile, a little bit maybe less rigid in terms of the system and the thing that they want to do um, under Dowell Loggins as they might have been a year ago um, with Marcus Satterfield. Well, and you've already referenced the the freshman phenom, uh, Nicholas Harbour. What what role do you see him playing uh, in this offense? I mean, I, I got to imagine we got to get him the ball as much as possible. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the expectation is he's going to come in and play receiver. Um, that's an interesting dynamic at the very least. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about his track speed and everything else. And, you know, I mean, Olympic level track speed. We're not just talking about sort of run of the mill high school track speed. Like this dude is a legit Olympic level sprinter type type deal. So 
I think with a guy like that, I think it was Shane who was joking about it at one point. It's sort of, you know, you line him up and tell him to run straight and say, you know, run the touchdown play kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, run straight and run past your guy. So, you know, certainly there's going to be some intricacies to, to playing receiver and getting in and out of breaks and things like that, that, that we'll have to, we'll take time to adjust. And I think that, you know, the thing with Nick is that he's a guy who hasn't played a ton, a ton of football for a guy that is a, as athletic and as gifted as he is. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, he is certainly an, an absolutely incredible athlete, but there's fine tuning that comes with that. And, and you know, that's not to say that Har- Nick's going to go red shirt next year or anything like that. But I do think that, you know, if, if he doesn't get super involved till say the seventh or the eighth game or the fifth or sixth game, like that's not a total surprise, especially considering he didn't get here to enroll mid year. There's transitions that come. There's transitions just transitioning to college life that comes. I mean, he's a super gifted athlete, but I do think there's there's a little bit of development that'll go on there as a pure football player. Um, I think that'll happen. So we'll see. I, I am sure that whenever Nick Harbor catches his first touchdown, that is going to be a uh, a sight to be seen. And and he did play some tight end in, at high school too, so it's not a completely foreign concept. But I do think that sort of the finer things of route running and finer points of route running and all that stuff. You know you're gonna you're gonna see a little bit of that, but it, it's definitely gonna be interesting to see him uh, lining up a receiver and just uh, basically trying to run past guys. All right, Ben, I really appreciate all your time. One one final question: What's the in two parts? What's the what's the biggest thing you learned about this team in, in spring camp, and what's the biggest question that's unanswered exiting spring? Biggest thing I think we learned is that there's gonna be it's going to be a more veteran group on offense, I think, which is helpful. Um, you know, you're going to have a guy like Juice Wells back. You've got a pretty proven number one receiver that you didn't necessarily have a year ago. I think that's going to help. Um, even if his numbers dip a little bit, I think it's still going to be a guy that is going to be a, at the very least, he's a guy that, that will take attention away from other guys. And I think that that helps. Um, I think you're going to have older guys in, at tight end, and Trey Knox and, and some others that, that will be really, really talented. And Josh Simon from Western Kentucky, who I think is probably a little bit under the radar as far as, you know, even in Columbia, even, I mean, in the SEC for sure, but definitely even in Columbia. Um, I think those guys are going to make some plays. And I think obviously you bring back a guy like Spencer Rattler, that's going to matter. Um, now, the biggest questions I have are, are sort of twofold, or there's a couple. I mean, I think the biggest thing is you've got a couple of holes that you really need to fill, and one of them being running back and losing Marshawn Lloyd is that you've got some options, but there's not really any one guy that sort of screams bell cow, um, and maybe it becomes a by-committee approach. Maybe it becomes a, hey, we'll, we'll, instead of running between the tackles, you throw a eight-yard screen or something along those lines, right? You sort of manufacture a run game, and maybe that's what it turns into, and that's okay. Um, and then the same thing kind of falls on the defense as well. You've got to replace your, both your starting defensive ends and Jordan Burch and Gilbert Edmond in the secondary. You got to replace Cam Smith and Darius Rush at corner. I mean, you got some pretty, not, you know, you always have holes and you're always going to have places that you need to ex- replace experience uh, in college football. But South Carolina's replacing guys at positions that they had real difference makers, and I think that's maybe the big difference, and that's the thing that you know makes me maybe take a step back or have maybe a little bit of trepidation of saying like, Oh, this is the year South Carolina breaks out and wins 10 games or whatever it might be. Like there's just some really major things that need to be addressed. And with the portal windows now closed and sort of that for lack of a better term, drying up a little bit. um, It's going to be really interesting to see how South Carolina manages some of those spots, just because I think that there's, it's just a lot of unknown. And I mean, we can project all day, but until you see it, well, you know, you don't know. So 
Right. Uh, th- those are kind of the two biggest things that I see. Well, Ben, I can't thank you enough for all your time. Before you go, can you tell the audience w- what's the best and easiest way to find all your work? Yeah, definitely. You can get it on uh, thestate.com or uh, on my Twitter account, I suppose, at, at bportnoy15. So those are, those are probably your best bets. Just want to give a shout out to Ben. Really appreciate his time. He's one of the best in the SEC. I really do enjoy our chats with Ben. Hope to see him. In fact, I know I will at SEC Media Days. And like he said there, he's going to be at the spring meetings. He's all over anything Gamecock-related, SEC-related. He's doing the Twitter spaces. I highly recommend you check out Ben when he gets on these Twitter spaces weekly during the season. He's doing them during the offseason as well. Great stuff from Ben. Really appreciate him spending so much time there and uh, giving us a great interview to close the week strong. But hey, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. Keep posted. Notifications and everything. We got a very, very special guest coming up on the next episode. We even I think I'm going to debut it on Saturday night, the video, because it's another big one. So uh, video Saturday audio monday as per usual but i think you guys are really going to appreciate the next episode of the show so keep posted and uh can't wait to reveal who we got on this one another big get so hey that's going to do it for this episode of the show i really do appreciate each and every one of you for continuing to check us out please spread the word on the show rate review subscribe follow us on all the social medias we don't ask for much but we would really appreciate any support you could throw our way as we inch closer to the college football season. It's going to be our best one ever, and we want more people along for the ride with us. So thanks again to each and every one of you. We'll catch you on the next one. Hey, buddy, this beer's for you, Mike, and Cousin Shane. That SEC podcast loves the Pirate, and the Pirate loves that SEC podcast. Hail State.